This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Uh, We're very uh, pleased to have with us uh, Amy Webb to talk about her new book, The Big Nine. Uh, Amy is a futurist. Now, as she can attest, there's often uh, a lot of uncertainty about just what futurists are and do. Uh, They often get confused with fortune tellers or oracles, you know, people who gaze into crystal balls and purport to see what's coming. Well, that's not Amy. She doesn't work with, uh, with crystal balls or recite incantations. For her, understanding the future involves uh, a lot of careful observing of the changing nature of the present. It involves assessing trends, taking counsel from smart people, collecting data, and identifying what the important indicators of change really are. Uh, it's essentially a, a pragmatic approach to thinking ahead. Amy herself draws on varied academic uh, on a varied academic background that includes game theory, economics, statistics, political science, computer science, sociology, music, and yes, even journalism. Uh, in fact, she worked for a bit as a journalist after earning a graduate degree in journalism at Columbia. Then in 2006, she founded the Future Today Institute, a management consulting firm that specializes in tracking emerging technologies. She's also now a professor at the NYU School of Business, where she teaches a course on strategic foresight and futures forecasting. Uh, Amy wrote about the methods she uses to anticipate the future in a book called The Signals Are Talking that came out about uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, In The Big Nine, she focuses on the rapidly developing field of artificial intelligence, which she's very worried about. She's worried because much of the development is concentrated in nine firms, all of which in one way or another are hamstrung from doing what's in the world's best interest. Six of the firms are based in the United States, where our government has no real grand strategy for AI. And so these companies uh, basically have been outsourced to do AI, but they're subject to the relentless short-term demands of a capitalist system in which the top priority is making investors happy. The other three firms are in China, where their work is tied to a government strategy, but it's a strategy bent on world domination and authoritarian control, so you see the problem. Amy, in her book, not only elaborates on these disturbing trends, she also, thoughtfully and and very articulately, offers some suggestions for a better way forward. Hers is a strong case for a more sophisticated and intelligent national and international conversation about the future of AI and how it might better serve humanity. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Amy Webb. Um, Thank you all for being here. So I guess I would just like to start by telling you a quick story um, about something that happened. uh, I guess it's been about six months now. So at six months ago uh, in Seattle, there were a bunch of journalists who gathered in a place called The Spheres. Um, The Spheres is the name of a glorious, beautiful, enormous greenhouse 
that is part of Amazon's campus downtown. Um, I've had the opportunity to visit the spheres and uh, it's, it's an unbelievably magical place. Um, so imagine huge, huge domes um, that are completely see-through uh, that block UV light, um, but still let all of the sunlight in. Um, and inside there are 40,000 species of plants that are growing and there are docents that can lead you around um, and tell you everything that you might want to know about the plants. The air is fragrant. It is 73 degrees all year long, regardless of what it's doing outside. And it isn't just a place to walk through and look at plants, they're workspaces. They're incredibly comfortable chairs. Um, there's a treehouse that adults can walk up into and have meetings. You can bring your pets. Uh, it is a, a magical, amazing, wonderful place. And in this amazing place with the fragrant air and the beautiful uh, plants and the perfect humidity, Amazon announced that it was having a big press conference and that they were going to announce somewhere on the order of 80 new products and services. If For those of you who are journalists in the room, um, usually when there's a press conference, there's like a big thing that gets announced or maybe two big things. So the very prospect of 80 important things that were being announced was sort of ridiculous to everybody, but the journalists gathered. So they gather in the middle of these spheres among the beautiful plants and the perfect humidity. And for two and a half hours, various employees from Amazon are sort of going through and, and laying out all of these new developments, Amazon web services, machine recognition, all these really interesting things in artificial intelligence that were on the horizon that were being launched. And at the tail end of all of these announcements was a footnote, uh, something that uh, quite frankly, people laughed at when they heard it. It was an Alexa-powered microwave. Did anybody hear about this Alexa-powered microwave? So basically, um, this is a microwave that instead of having, to, you know, it's a laborious thing to push buttons on a microwave when you want to, right? Um, so instead of having to like muster the strength to walk over to the microwave, how American is this? To push the buttons, you can instead say, Alexa, pop my popcorn. Um, and just like you're laughing right now, the tech journalists, maybe they were at that point giddy and silly because of the fragrant air and having to sit in one place for two and a half hours, um, they, they thought this was funny. Uh, and so everybody goes about their way and, and that stuck with me. This talking microwave thing to me was really, really interesting because it fit into a bigger constellation of things that are happening within this company. So as it turns out, Amazon also uh, holds a stake and is a partner with Lennar. Does anybody know that name, Lennar? Somebody shout out what it is. That's right. It's a housing company. In fact, it's America's largest home building company. And um, what they've been working on are complete soup to nuts, Amazon powered homes. I'm not talking about just like a few speakers here and there where you can talk to Alexa. And I'm not talking about a single solitary microwave. I'm talking about a house full of sensors uh, and smart doorbells that recognize faces. And, you know, if there's a neighbor that you don't like, you can have the system recognize their face and they don't get to come in your house. Uh, if it's a relative that you do like, uh, the face can be recognized and they can walk and, and sort of walk in and come and go as they please. Um, there are tons of technologies that, that power this Amazon home. And when you buy the home and move in, uh, an employee from Amazon meets you and sort of goes through the whole uh, rigmarole of setting up all the technology and makes it as easy as possible. And then you're inside of this Amazon smart home. And so that brings me back to the microwave. 
why would Amazon bother with building out these smart homes or putting talking components into our microwaves? And I think it comes down to two things, data and popcorn. So when you pop a bag of popcorn, if you order popcorn from Amazon, um, Amazon puts it in a box and at some point that box shows up at your house. And along the way, there's a ton of data that's being generated and collected. Uh, where you were when you placed that order, whether or not the order is a subscription, uh, what else you were ordering or looking at at the time that you were potentially buying that popcorn, all this stuff. But once the box shows up to your house, that's it. No more data gets collected. However, once you open up that box, if you, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. You open up the box, you put the popcorn into the microwave, you tell Alexa to pop the popcorn. Here's what happens. Not only does Alexa know how much popcorn you're consuming, but there's other biometric data that in the very near future will also be collected because Amazon, along with a lot of the other big tech players, are working on new technologies within the realm of AI that do things like recognize who we are and how we are. So not just me, but whether or not I'm sick uh, because there's a baseline amount of data that's been taken and I show an anomaly right now. Um, whether or not I've had a stroke and I don't realize it yet. Whether or not I'm manic, whether or not I'm depressed, uh, whether or not I've got early onset Parkinson's. Um, and not just how I am at this moment in time, but also all of the other constellation uh, data points that are part of my life. So we know that Google, Apple, and Amazon, as well as Facebook and IBM uh, that, and Microsoft, are all also tangentially related to the healthcare space. So now picture this, and not right now, but in a couple of years, all of this data that we're generating all day long ultimately gets funneled up into these companies. Uh, and at some point, your Fitbit or your smartwatch is talking to the microwave, which is talking to some central server somewhere. And when you put that popcorn into the microwave, Alexa decides that you've already hit your caloric intake for the day. So you don't get to pop the popcorn. Um, or you decide that you want to wash your jeans. And let's say that you're living in a place like Austin, Texas, which has had historic and, you know, historic droughts. Um, and you put your jeans in your washing machine, which has sensors. And the washing machine that's a part of your smart house decides, you know what? You could probably get another day out of those jeans. Let's go ahead and wear them one more time because washing them would contribute to the drought. Or you all probably live in somewhere near here in, in Washington, D.C., most, much of the city is walkable. I think we could all say that, you know, it might be a little bit more of a pain, but you could probably take public transit everywhere you need to go, or you could simply walk or ride a bike. You know, you could try to leave your smart home by opening up the garage on your house and the garage could refuse to open because according to the weather, today is going to be sunny. You haven't gotten your steps in yet and you can walk that mile to work. So like all of these things sound fantastical and silly and funny, but the thing that they share in common is that they're all intended to optimize. They're, they're the offshoots of optimization. And what's happened without our realizing it is that um, because our federal government has stripped funding from science and technology over many years and many administrations, we've essentially left the development of essential technologies like artificial intelligence um, to be developed entirely 
by the, the private sector. And I'm happy to debate and discuss with you about the wonderful work that's being done in universities, but those universities are also being funded, not as much by the federal government, but by these companies that are in the private sector. Um, and we could talk all day long about all the patents and all of the research that's being done, but guess what? All of that research is being done by those companies in the private sector. And the best and the brightest people who are all going to college, who are learning complicated things in computer science, are, are not incentivized to go into civil service. Um, there, there are too many benefits now in the private, uh, in the private sector. Uh, I've, I can tell you that I've, I've now eaten lunch. I've eaten lunch at both the, uh, the Navy's executive dining room um, and at Google in the like general cafeteria. The Navy's executive dining room is very cool. It's like deep inside the Pentagon. Uh, it's small. There are very fancy plates with insignias. Uh, and, you know, you're in the executive dining room. You could look to your left. You could look to your right. You're probably sitting next to a three-star or a four-star admiral. It's like pretty amazing. Um, but enlisted people don't get to eat there, right? It's a, it's a tiny dining room designated for just a handful of very fancy people. The regular enlisted people for Google. Oh, and by the way, um, I had a decent meal. It was okay. Um, there were three or four things on the menu as options. Uh, they, they were fine. Um, other times that I've been to the Pentagon, I ate where everybody else eats. Uh, and there's like, you know, your standard Panera style, nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with Panera, but... Um, you know, a little salty, a little dry, edible, but nothing to write home about. Google, on the other hand, has extraordinary food um, that I've eaten many times. Um, you know, fresh diver scallops. Um, I'm not really a bacon person, but they have bacon all the time. Um, I was at another location where there's, you know, like another big tech company where there's micro local micro brews on tap and they've got nutritionists on staff to help you optimize your, your daily living. Like that's just lunch. That's, that's just lunch. When you compare the perks of civil service to the perks of working with these big companies, there's no comparison. So that brings me to why you are all here and why I wrote this book. Um, it became apparent to me over time, you know, my, my job is to model risk for a living and I've primarily focused on technology and over and over I kept coming back to these same nine companies, these same companies that control the lion's share of patents that have an extraordinary amount of money that are able to attract the best talent because they have the best food, um, you know, th that, um, that uh, have the relationships with universities. And it doesn't mean that there aren't other companies like Salesforce or NVIDIA or Uber that aren't doing amazing things, but it's, these, it's through these nine companies that everything else flows. The entire AI ecosystem in some way or another touches these nine. Um, in addition to all of the things that I just mentioned, they are also building the frameworks and the custom silicone ch chips, um, and they've got the code bases. All, all road leads all roads lead to these nine companies. And the challenge that I have is that if it's the case that artificial intelligence is um, not just being built to, to create a better microwave, although that's cool, but instead to optimize our lives um, using data as currency, 
what does it mean when we relegate that to just a handful of companies and a handful of people working at these companies um, who, who probably don't look like us and don't have the same worldviews as us? What are the longer term downstream implications of that look like? Three of those companies are, are in China. Uh, they're, they're the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. They are publicly traded companies, but I've lived in China, also lived in Japan. And anybody who watches China knows that publicly traded companies are still under the thumb of Beijing. So th there is no escape. Um, you can be an incredibly, you, if you are an incredibly successful CEO, it is because you are in lockstep in some ways with the Chinese government. And that matters because uh, China currently has a brilliant brilliant person at the helm. President Xi Jinping is very, very smart. He's a very effective leader and he's a very good long-term planner. Um, China has a culture of long-term planning. And um, you could go back throughout history and look at a lot of their big strategic initiatives and their five-year plans and see how a lot of them really never amounted to anything. But I think things are different this time. And they're different because we have a person in power and a leadership team around him who really understand technology. And so you've probably heard of the Belt and Road Initiative. Okay, so this seems like an, uh, an infrastructure initiative. You're building bridges and roads in exchange for debt diplomacy um, all around the world, all along the old Silk Road route, as well as deep into Latin America and, and uh, Africa. But what most people don't realize is that this isn't just about building physical bridges and physical roads. There's a digital component as well. So 58 countries are part of the digital side of the BRI. They're getting 5G, Chinese 5G. They're getting small cell technology. And they're also getting something called China's um, social credit score system. So uh, there are parts in southern China uh, right now where uh, you might be at an intersection and if you jaywalk, uh, which is illegal there, um, smart cameras placed around the intersection will recognize who you are. You can have your face covered uh, or you could be obscured, but these systems are very, very smart and they're, they can recognize you by gait, by posture, um, by how you're walking. And so if you've you know, caused an infraction, um, your face gets thrown up on a digital billboard uh, at that intersection. Um, along with your name and where you work. And that information is transmitted to your employers uh, and to your family members. And if you've done it more than once, you might be told to report to a local police precinct and you are demoted. So your total score as a Chinese citizen um, is, is taken down a few notches. There are opportunities to earn points if you've done something good. Um, somebody can report meritorious work and then you might get a few points up. This is a program that is intended to be national that hasn't yet rolled out nationally. And you may be saying to yourselves, well, that's China. Uh, I don't live there. So I don't, you know, this is very interesting, but you know, who cares? Well, let me tell you why this matters to you. Uh, first of all, this system already has prevented 17.5 million people from buying airplane tickets. Um, seven, more than 17 million people last year couldn't fly. Uh, five and a half million people last year couldn't buy a train ticket and 300,000 people who did really great jobs uh, at work, uh, their scores were too low and they were, as a result, disqualified from ascending to management positions. 
Um, and these aren't just ethnic minorities who are being discriminated against. This is a this is a shot at um, huge uh, social control. And again, you may be saying to yourself, listen, you had me at talking microwave. Uh, I don't know why all of this necessarily matters to me. And the reason that it matters is that BRI. So if it's the case that China is aligning itself with all of these countries around the world, many of which are economically vulnerable or they are vulnerable for any other number of reasons because of climate change or because they've got political unrest um, and they are they are inching toward authoritarian leaders. Um, the social credit score system is a real good option for those places. It helps keep the populace in control. And China is already exporting this to various different places. Why this matters is because while we're fixated on future wars and building big ships and bombs and thinking about missiles in the sky, what we have forgotten to look at is what happens if China wages an economic war, which effectively blocks us out of places or forces us uh, to come to terms that, that we don't like or, or, or understand. Um, this potentially prevents us from doing business, for us from traveling, um, uh, and, and it potentially reshapes the world um, in, in a sort of new world order where China is, is not just a pacing threat, a militaristic and economic pacing threat, um, but China becomes a, a form, formidable global threat um, to all of us. That's China. In the United States, there's an antagonistic relationship. There's a transactional relationship on good days, but an antagonistic relationship more often than not between the Valley and D.C., and so what winds up happening is there's a lack of understanding. There aren't enough relationships. The Valley sort of does what it wants uh, until somebody gets upset and then they apologize and then they do the same thing again over and over and over again uh, until, until one day when you have somebody like Elizabeth Warren who starts demanding that they're broken up. Um, you can't break up these companies. Uh, there are many reasons why some of them have to do with strategy. Some of them have to do with just nuts and bolts of technology. But this is not like Bell. When, you remember when the Bell company got broken up into baby bells? This is not that. This is not telephony. Um, these companies have multiple divisions and they are intertwined and they are very complicated. And if the United States is going to continue to defund science and if it's going to continue to defund our education system and technology then who is going to build out the future of AI among other um, parts of science and, and tech and, and, and everything else? So you can't just, you can't just break these apart. Uh, they don't, it doesn't work that way. And in the process of you know, arguing back and forth, um, in the process, these companies are competing against each other rather than collaborating. So this sets us up for you know, inch by inch, little by little, your daily permissions being taken away. Um, uh, I no longer have the ability to back my car into my garage with the radio up on full volume. That's because somebody who's in a part of a small group, who's part of a small AI tribe, decided that uh, they were going to optimize my best, healthiest life and that I was probably unsafe, like you're probably unsafe, even though we've never been in a car accident. Um, so I no longer have control over the volume in my car. That seems insignificant but there's a compounding effect over time. And we are all part now of this process that's unfolding in slow motion. You've heard the analogy of the frog in the pot and the water slowly over time uh, boiling and it just, you don't realize it until the, the frog is dead. Um, I don't wanna be the dead frog in the pot. And I, and I, I 
realize that sounds like hyperbole, but there are so many things that are happening that we've turned a blind eye to that at some point um, there, there is no way to turn this back. There's no switch. There's no singular switch for AI. There's no single person that's in charge. And at the moment, we have no national leadership on this issue. President Trump issued a, issued a and signed an executive order, but that executive order on artificial intelligence is not self-executing. We do not have budget. We do not have a singular department in charge. We do not have institutional knowledge spread throughout our federal government. We have a lot of smart people, um, but they're not in the right places. And in the Valley, um, we have incredibly smart people who I do think want to do good uh, by and for society, but who are instead constantly dealing with market demands. So let me be, let me be clear on this. I don't think that the big nine companies, and certainly not the G Mafia, which is our part of, of, of the of the big nine, I don't think they're evil. Uh, I don't think they intend to do harm. I think we've gotten ourselves into a situation where the system is broken. I believe that the smart engineers and the smart people who lead these teams um, want the best of all possible worlds for AI, um, because there is a lot of really positive change on the horizon that's good for all of us. Uh, my mother died early of a rare cancer that um, they didn't quite understand what it was. Uh, so they, and she was at MD Anderson. She was like at the world's, she was being seen by the world's greatest doctors. And, and unfortunately, a team of terrific doctors were still biologically limited by the squishy computers in our heads, our brains. Um, you know, if it had been 10 years from now, and if uh, we had made great decisions today that enabled our AI systems to grow in a, in a meaningful way, um, that story could have been different for my mom. And instead of being treated kind of sort of for cancers that she didn't have, but that's, that's all that they had to work from, they could have maybe developed a precision treatment just for her. Um, and, you know, I could tell that exact same story across multiple industries, across multiple fields. So there's a ton on the horizon that's very promising, but the only way that we get there is if we figure out a way to collaborate and, um, collaboration is going to require difficult decision-making. We're going to have to make some sacrifices. The big nine companies are going to have to make some sacrifices. We're going to have to depoliticize this issue. Um, and we have to see artificial intelligence not as a buzzy word, but as the next era of computing into which everything else is, is sort of plugged in. Um, and the closer and the sooner that we come to that realization, the, the better off that we're all going to be. Um, you know, I would just add, I'd like to add just a couple of more things. I mean, that's sort of the general thesis of the book. Um, artificial intelligence is not, it's not off in the future. We tend to anthropomorphize it. And think of AI in terms of walking, talking robots. Um, everybody in here at some point today, probably 50 or 20, you know, 50 or 100 times today has, has used AI. So if you've got email, your email is in many ways powered by artificial intelligence. Um, the messaging system on your phone, if you use an Android, you now have suggested messages. You can just hit a button to text somebody back. That's artificial narrow intelligence. Um, the anti-lock brake systems in your cars, the recommendation systems that you use on Spotify or Netflix, um, the, the credit, if you use a credit card to buy the book, um, which you should, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, or you could pay cash either way. Um, but the, uh, but the credit card system in real time is using anti-fraud, uh, machine learning algorithms to detect whether or not you're using a stolen credit card. It's my point is it's already here. Uh, we have to stop talking in terms of um, 
the, these big sort of, you know, we have to stop talking in, in abstraction. Um, and we have to s stop talking as though this stuff is far off in the distance or whatever. China is a copy paste culture culture. They're not doing anything innovative or interesting. We have to stop referencing the past as though that is exactly what our future is going to look like. Uh, and we have to do that fast because the technology is evolving much faster than our government's ability to re to do anything about it. Um, everyday people, us in the pot, the frogs, uh, we, we, unless we are actively paying attention, we don't sense that the, the water, the water starting to boil. Um, and, and the longer that we put all of this off, the, the worse off we are all going to be. Um, the, the nine companies that I cover, they each have their own agenda and they have a responsibility to their shareholders as publicly traded companies. Uh, but we need to incentivize them uh, to refine and recalibrate those agendas so that people are at the center of what they're building um, and that they have the ability to put safety before speed um, and, and to build out their technology in a way that truly does benefit everybody. Um, all right. I just talked for a half hour. Uh, you should be scared. I'm not going to... I mean, I, the, you should be concerned um, and hopefully you should be concerned into into taking some kind of action. Um, so I will answer whatever questions that you have. It sounds perfectly Orwellian. Um, the thi I'm a physician. The thing that strikes me is we've been hearing about AI for 20 years now. AI can count things and measure things and find correlations. It is not a doctor. When, for instance, Watson tried to diagnose a form of cancer, it didn't work. And yes, they will refine it and this and that. But do you really want to interact with a computer to diagnose your mother and have the computer explain it to you? Uh, I think there's tremendous faith in AI that we're not quite there yet. Although I, you know, I can see how your house would work. I would never live in it. Um, I mean, I get these messages on my email. And so there are things I don't put in email. Um, and the reason they're a private, a retired federal employee, and the reason uh, the government is is at such a loss is after 1980, uh, the government just trashed the government. Um, government is the problem, not the solution. And that's where we are. So I don't, it's easy to see the problem. I don't see any solution. I should, thank you. Thank you very much for that question and for all of those points. I should point out, that the, the last third of this book is all solutions. I, I do see, um, but I do see a positive ways forward. And I will actually tell you one of the solutions in the book that okay. specifically addresses the physician data healthcare issue. So you're right. Um, Watson, which is IBM's one of AB, IBM's AI systems, uh, was in some partnerships with a few hospitals right. and was deployed to try to detect uh, cancer. And as you are correct, um, the system did not perform well. However, the system didn't, in my observation and experience, the system performed well. Uh, the algorithm and, the, and Watson itself is pretty amazing. That wasn't the problem. Right. No, I understand that. The problem was the data. And the reason, so, so, um, Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you slice it, data in the United States is locked into EMRs, electric right. medical record systems, which are all proprietary. Don't get me started. 
you and I will have a chat later on. Uh, there's a whole there's a whole issue. So so you've got data locked away in these proprietary systems who are unwilling to collaborate and they are financially disincentivized to do so. Watson, on the other hand, needs the, the data to train and to learn. Otherwise, there's, you can't deploy the system. So they wound up having to use synthetic data sets. There's nothing wrong with a synthetic data set. It's a, it's a data set that's been created by humans in order to help machines learn. But again, we are bi- biologically limited. And oftentimes, if you don't have a good cross-section, cross-functional group of people, that data set is going to be flawed. So the system was deemed by physicians not to work but the interpretation of why it didn't work was incorrect. From my vantage point, the reason was you get bad data in, right. you have garbage bad data on the other out. end, which comes back to if we had some kind of leadership at a national level, we would have some answers and some better possibilities forward. Um, to your point about email and you're not living in a smart home, I am sorry to be the bearer of bad news here, um, but but you are being, by, by virtue of the fact that you are alive in the year 2019, you can try to unconnect yourself as much as you want. You are being mined and refined and productized and optimized and monetized all the time, even if you yourself are not actively using Facebook. Um, so, but one of the solutions, this, the, this mm-hmm. book is, uh, is also intended, again, to get people into action. So the whole third part of the book goes through solutions that individuals can take, universities can take, doctors can take. Um, I propose some big structural changes that have to do with the government and uh, international cooperation. So, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Continuing with the idea of the smart house, I have seen articles suggesting that today families and households are having to decide whether they're going to be a Google house, an Amazon house. I wrote that. Yes. I thought you might. That was me in the Times. Yes, exactly. I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, you know, assume that you make some sort of an intelligent choice and, you know, that this is stratifying society based on which features individual households choose. Um, And let's say that it's a good idea that one of these smart things will be able to discern whether you're having an early stage stroke so that your life can be saved. Mm -hmm. What's going to be left for the municipal sector? I mean, is Google going to call the rescue squad and get answered before Apple Mm -hmm. gets answered? So that's a really good question. I mean, that's a good question. I will say that some of that um, privatizing is already starting to happen. So Uber, uh, which is not one of the big nine, but has gotten into the non-emergency medical transport business, and they're working on automating that. Um, so here's what I would say. I'm, I'm actually okay if I'm in my home and Amazon tells me that I'm sick before I know that I'm sick. Um, to me, that's a that's a useful diagnostic. However, what I would like to have happen is that my data is portable and interoperable. If anybody in this room has ever been in a situation where you've got an Apple phone and you an iPhone, and you want to change to an Android or vice versa, that right, that's forget it. Right, it's a nightmare. Imagine your entire home is an Apple home, and for whatever reason, you decide that you want to be a Google home or that your data or your family's data is now part of one of these systems. I mean, again, this sounds fantastical, but could could my daughter 
let's say my, my home is an Amazon home, what would it be like if my daughter married into a Google family? <laughs> it's funny, but there's a practical reason that I'm asking. Because if I go over to that, I mean, what happens when you try to intermingle the data? If my daughter goes over to her, you know, future husband's Google home, like am I not recognized once I'm, am I like an anomaly once I get there? Again, I know these sound like crazy sci-fi scenarios, but there's plenty of evidence that this is the direction that we're headed in. So the, the solution, which again, I, there, there's solutions in here. I realize I'm talking about apocalyptic times, but the future is make the process transparent, make our, give us ownership of our data, enable us to port that data into whichever system that we want to use and make these various systems play nicely with each other, which is going to require collaboration. But that is a way around some of these future problems. To take it a step further mm -hmm. with this Hatfields and McCoys kind yeah. of thing, um, with the realm of commerce and credit cards, is there going to be any cash left or are we going to see um, Visa families mm. and MasterCard families and will you know stores accept everything? That's a great question, too. I mean, we're starting to see some tech backlash in the fintech space. The city of Philadelphia, I believe, has just recently, there's a new city ordinance that you, you all stores must accept cash. Um, you know, but, it, but what you're saying raises a, an important point and one that I talk about in detail in the book. You know, I'm concerned that we are headed into new economic strata and classes of people. Um, you know, and if you can afford the really expensive, you know, Apple products, then, then that's great. But, and one of the scenarios that I describe is, which I, again, I see, if you look at all the housing stuff and all of the other data points, it's plausible that Amazon gets the government contract for, uh, for subsidized housing. Um, and the people living in the subsidized housing get their Amazon basic products, you know, rather than, than, uh, anyhow. So, so, but are those people then discriminated against because they're Amazon families versus Apple families? I know that these sound like extremes, um, and they're not going to happen tomorrow, but if that's what's potentially on the horizon, why don't we work to prevent some of this, um, happening, you know, so to your point about Visa and MasterCard and, and digital payments, I mean, absolutely there, there's, there are possibilities that people could get locked out of, you know, economic, Systems. One last sure, point. Sure. Since everything is subject to arbitration now, is there going to be Amazon justice mm. and Google justice and Apple justice? That that's a good question. That I don't know about. But here's what I would love to prevent. Since we've seen in other cases like bioengineering, um, the Patent and Trademark Office, in in absence of us having a national policy and point of view and guardrails in the United States, a lot of these cases wind up adjudicated or they wind up as patent and trademark office um, cases. You know, I don't want to be in a situation where there's regulation which then gets handed down to the courts and the courts are like the last thing we want is for the legal system to be duking all of this out and figuring it all out while China marches ahead with its, you know, with its buddies that are all part of its new political system. That would be disastrous. So thank you. Those were really smart questions. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go down a level to the present. So I'm an active Amazon user on Amazon. You're an Amazon I'm, family. And, not really. <laughs> and I, uh, I Google a lot. So there's all kinds of information that they have on me that I'm not aware of, I can imagine. But just last week for the first time, I did a search on myself in the system and was amazed at all that came out, but all that could come out. So 
We know about the house I bought and how much it costs and whether I had a criminal record, my jobs, etc. What other information is out there and what are the dangers of these systems? And Oh, and I'm supposed to, if I look up somebody else's information, say that I'm not going to share it. You know that's not going to happen. Tell me a little bit about that. So I'm going to make you feel very uncomfortable. I I'm going to just apologize will. in advance for no, this. Please do. Uh, you're going to want to take a shower, get some whiskey. I don't know. Um, so, uh, so there are literally hundreds of pieces of data that are being collected with you uh, from you every time you interact with some kind of device. So if you hold your mobile device, the pressure with which you are pushing down on your screen, the amount of time that it takes you to push different buttons, um, the places that you go, uh, the things that you do once you are at those places online, um, whether you tend to spell questions quickly or you hang between the U and the E as you search, all of these things are bioindicators. Um, and all of those, and that's just your phone, right? Um, the, the way that you walk as you walk through certain places, um, you know, pretty soon. So Walmart has recently filed a patent. Doesn't mean that this is going to be a product and they're not, these, these don't exist right now, but there's a brand new shopping cart that Walmart's working on um, that takes a baseline biometric data uh, set of data when you get to the store. So you get to the store, you get your shopping cart, you, hold, you, you, get, you put your hands on the shopping cart. The Walmart shopping cart takes your temperature. Uh, it takes your heart rate, um, how hard you're pressing down on it, how fast you're moving through the store, and it takes a baseline. And then as you move around, if your heart rate starts racing or you get hot or you're gripping a lot, um, the, the shopping cart may sense that you are feeling stressed out because you can't find the Captain Crunch. Uh, and so it will ping a server, which will then ping a Walmart employee who will come over to find you to make sure you're not ready to go ballistic because you can't find your, your cereal. Um, and also, uh, that information would ostensibly be sent back to um, retail partners and people who are selling things and just to help Walmart understand uh, where people are lingering more in the store, where they're feeling frustrated, how much people are determining cost savings as they're shopping, what else they might be doing. Are they clicking on their phone? Are they taught? Okay. So I, I could spend the next 10 hours going through all of the different points of information. The Walmart thing isn't happening yet, but there's plenty of other examples. There are also companies um, that uh, collect all of this information to make determinations about you in real time. Um, there's a whole new field called biometric uh, data scanning and behavioral biometrics. So uh, as a quick example, we've all forgotten our passwords, which is really annoying. Um, using all of these different data points, there are now companies that if you spend maybe three or four seconds typing, they can instantly identify who you are and whether or not it's really you or somebody else logged in with your username and password. Um, so the benefit here, there's creepy stuff, but the net benefit is the end of passwords, um, the end of two-factor authentication, the end of driver's licenses, the end of boarding passes, right? I mean, we don't have to carry the end of credit cards. We don't have to carry any physical stuff around with us anymore because we ourselves and all of our data are, being, are, are, are things that can be identified. But the question is about data governance. Who owns the data? Are they owners or, or stewards of it? Do I get to choose who uses that data and when? Do I get to decide which machine learning algorithms are mining and refining that data? So that, and where is the transparency? Um, you know, the, these are big questions that are on. Who owns your face? Uh, somebody takes your face. Can you take it back? These are all questions on our horizon that we ought to start thinking but, about. But let's go back to the fact that I'm going to go yeah. in and I'm going to do a search on you and I'm going to find a bunch of information. 
Yes. There's a lot more information on you that's, that, that could come up. How do you protect your own? Well, in I my think. case, I've been I'm very... Using yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. But I mean, I can tell you about me. Um, so I've been very, very careful uh, for very long about uh, what I post. I'm a public person, so I have no expectation of total privacy. But I'm a, I have a family, so I've intentionally never posted photos of my daughter. Um, I've never talked about her publicly um, because I want to give her the option in the future of you know, being able to remain anonymous in some way or, you know, whatever it might be. So we have to just make smarter choices about all of this. And I think we should not expect that we are private people anymore, um, but we should be better informed about what happens. And it's not that the information is out there. It's how that information is being used to make decisions. That That's the piece that's important. Thank, Thank you. you. So I want to kind of discuss more on how to get the government, U.S. government incorporated in all of this. Um, I mean, we can see from earlier last year, I guess, when Mark Zuckerberg was testifying with Congress, how little they really knew about the yes. Internet. Yeah. So there's that, you know, the fact that there's a lack of knowledge by the people there. And also just a lot of most government agencies, they rely on older technology or outdated technology. One reason for sake of security, but also still is just not open to new technologies. They're stuck with Internet Explorer and they're stuck with uh, Microsoft Vista or something like that. So seeing that people are either just have no knowledge or they are there's no incentive for them to improve their own personal technology. How do you expect or do you see any hints of them wanting to put mm -hmm. technology advancements onto their agenda? So government is big. Right. And so I think we should be careful to not say the government doesn't want whatever. Um, there are plenty of brilliant people that I know who are working all over the place, OSTP, state, DOD, um, who are knowledgeable, um, who I think uh, are underutilized. Um, again, in our country, the way that change is made is through the channels of established leadership. So it would be terrific if we had the executive branch making informed decisions about the future of this technology and allocating funds and maybe thinking through the implications of trade war all the time um, with, with China and instead thinking through what the downstream implications of that might be. Um, we have uh, Congress people who themselves may not be experts in all of this, but who definitely have people on staff. Uh, it would be terrific if um, those people would consider um, new ways and policies and plans and, and in, again, like in strategic tactical terms for getting, uh, for building up that institutional knowledge throughout all areas of government. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, this is like not a silver bullet sort of solution. If it was China and President Xi Jinping said, you know, we are, we will be the global AI hegemon by the year 2030, which by the way is what he yeah. said. Um, they have an apparatus uh, and a government structure to make that happen. Mm -hmm. That is not the case here. So again, we have to, this is like a, a full court press coming from all different sides where everybody agrees that it's in our best interest to, um, to create a better future for ourselves. Here's a problem. In Canada, uh, ca so recently Canada just released its own um, vision of what an AI ethics policy should look like. Uh, Estonia is working on something. Like, AI doesn't recognize geographic boundaries. So if, if in absence of, na of some kind of global leadership, a bunch of countries start coming up with their own regulatory frameworks and their own systems and doing their own things, 
Like that, that, that is catastrophically bad. Um, we already have a splintered internet, splinter nets that function, the internet functions differently depending on where you are. The last thing I want is code that is capable of generating and making its own decisions, doing its own thing, um, you know, and, and is subject to regulations depending on where in the world we are. I mean, that would be awful. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, to, to answer your question, since I haven't, uh, this this has to be something that happens all throughout all levels of government in different ways with tactical plans, not just talking about things. Yeah. Okay. And just one more question, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, because of course, having a lot of companies in China, seeing that they are connected to the government, it's very scary just because China's authoritarian. Um, Xi Jinping is kind of a very scary, effective leader, but also granted, it gives them a lot of access to one data, which is really important to that technology and also progressing their technology. That's They're right. able to now be, uh, you know, remote. You can just tap your phone to pay for a subway or for anything at all in That's China. Right. You can, their license plates, you can, instead of tolls of little fast tracks, they can just automatically go because they can see all the license plates. There's that kind of balance between giving away your privacy and making that scary and also giving away your privacy to benefit technolo technological advancements. So I guess that's right. So, again, I think you, those are excellent points. And mm -hmm. I think what they illustrate uh, and what I'm trying to illustrate in the book is we have to rethink this. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the existing structures of our legal system don't mesh with the realities of modern day technology for better or worse. So mm -hmm. we just have to rethink our approach. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. Thank you. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you had said that the uh, federal government uh, spending on science has been decreasing. But I think if you factor in the Defense Department, sure, I sh yeah, you're right. They, they, that has not been the case. Yes. And you have the big nine here, but certainly in the U.S. Defense Department, Israel, I'm going to assume China from what you're saying, huge expenditures for um, military purposes in all these areas that you're discussing. But again, you yeah, no, no, you're right. Um, so correct. Uh, DOD has certainly been spending on tech. Um, however, uh, AI has not been a focus a strategic focus, a coordinated focus until very, very recently. Um, so, and the, to be fair, the DOD budget, we can't like let DARPA try to make everything and, and wait for it to trickle down. Um, so, uh, so yes, there has been some science and tech spending and, and they're within DOD. Um, outside, no. And AI has not been a central focus. Um, and, and, there's been plenty publicly written about this, so this isn't just just me. Um, and then there have been some good positive changes made recently. But again, like we're showing up late to the party here. And we again, we've just we've got to feel a better sense of urgency and that there are some solutions at the end. So one other just uh, sure. in a different area. So as far as I'm aware, you know, people like Bryn and Page and certainly Bezos, they actually don't put this the shareholder first. Um, you know, Bezos and Amazon claims to put the customer first, and actually they don't maximize their short-term or even middle-term profit. Um, so they're, they're actually perhaps interested in something different. And I thought, you know, you probably have some comments about that. Sure. Well, I don't want to speak for, for Jeff and Larry and Sergey. Um, uh, but these are publicly traded companies, and they have a fiscal responsibility to uh, do right by their shareholders. Um, it, you know, they, they can't mismanage or, or reallocate uh, funds. Um, and there are a couple of good examples of, of how things have 
um, again, there's been some things that have gone wrong. So during earnings calls, past couple quarters, Amazon and Google both divulged their R&D spend, and that freaked investors out um, to the point where there were a lot of then follow-up calls and sort of, you know, uh, as, as a way to sort of placate the market and those investors. Um, you know, and there, again, the reality is these are companies that are working on fundamental technologies, fundamental technologies that are not being built or supported by um, outside entities in, in, the, in the public sector. Um, so, you know, that's what I would say. I think you can still put customers first, but obviously they are um, beholden to, to, the, to, the, to market demands uh, as every, as every uh, publicly traded company is. Yes. Um, hi. So you mentioned small cell technology rollout by China, um, but there's I've also been some pushback on that here in the United States, including a few towns in Marin County where a lot of tech workers live. Mm -hmm. So who would know better than them? Um, possible public health concerns about that technology. And I think even AT&T here in D.C. was rolling out some of those small cell antennas. So do you think there's any sort of pushback against that or any For relevant concerns? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have the, I'm a data-driven lady. Right. Uh, so I would want to not comment one way or the other without, um, without seeing any data or science behind it. And that's a good reminder to us all. Um, a lot of this technology has become really complicated. And unfortunately, we all have short attention spans. And it's, it's like, uh, it, it's going to take a, more than a few graphs of a, of a story to fully understand what this stuff is. So to the extent that we're all able to, it's a good reminder to um, seek out uh, academic papers, read the little abstracts, make sure that we're all on the same page about what's true and what isn't. And I, that, that's not a comment either way on, on what you said, but just good reminder. Do you think like a the precautionary principle is like a good principle to have in regulation of these technologies as they're rolled out? Or do you think yeah. it has to be in close consultation with the companies? Or? Um, so, you know, we used to have something called the Office of Technology Assessment, which I will keep talking about until I pass out because uh, uh, I just won't hashtag can't stop, won't stop. Um, so, so there was something called the Office of Technology Assessment, which was defunded uh, in the 90s. This was a non, what's that? By Newt Gingrich. I was going to say that, but uh, I, I decided not to. Yes, Gingrich defunded it in his contract on America. Did I say on? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so, but here's the deal. This, this was a uh, group of people that was nonpartisan, um, that was staffed with trained physicists and scientists and, and mathematicians, and their job was to educate, um, not in an advocacy way, but just to educate the people making policy on, like, this is what this is what the issue is. This is what the science says. This is what the data say, um, and and here's our recommendation. Um, in absence of that, a lot of this really complicated technology and exactly what you're talking about has sort of been relegated to outside interests. Um, and again, I'm politically independent, uh, although I'm, I get irritated with politicians when they when they strip away. Um, some of these educational opportunities um, or funding opportunities, um, you know, so we don't have that now. Um, the best that there are a few other offices here and there, but the best that we can do is to just rededicate ourselves to learning as much as we can using data and evidence. The issue of surveillance underlies a lot of what you're saying, and my understanding is that Facebook, Google, and Amazon all collect your data and then, you know, market it. Mm -hmm. uh, but Apple has a different business model, and my understanding is they don't do it. So I just wonder what your view is of that, and also what email you personally use so as not to get surveilled. 
Um, well, I'll answer the last question first. Um, I use Google uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but uh, my assumption is that anything that is, you know, that I'm sending over email, I would be irritated, but it's, it wouldn't be like damaging to my business or truly catastrophic. Um, anything that I care about or is sensitive, um, I use an encrypted uh, network that you've probably never heard of before. Um, and, and that's the way that I send a lot of my important stuff back and forth. And that's what my team at work is on. Uh, now to the question about who's surveilling what. So Apple has something called differential privacy. Uh, and they, they have been leaders in the field um, around protecting user privacy and, and user data. Apple is a closed system. So if you're using their products, you are inside of their ecosystem. And it's hard to, you know, if, if anybody's ever tried to get an app in the App Store, it's a, it's a difficult, complicated process, which is why, you know, Apple is far ahead in this space, which is why you've seen Tim Cook calling for regulation. Um, in privacy, it gives them a strategic advantage against Google and Amazon. That being said, if you can afford apps, so right? We're right back to where we started. If you can afford Apple's ecosystem of products, then great. You have a, a slight advantage for the time being in terms of how your privacy, if you're using just their ecosystem, so just um, Apple's email uh, system, just iCloud, just Apple products, um, then the, and nothing else in their photo sharing, you know, in their cloud, um, then yes, you, you have an upper leg on privacy. You are also paying dearly for it. And there are plenty of people who can't afford that. Thank you. Yeah. Sure thing. You get the last question. Great, thanks. Make it um, a good one. Okay. Um, I was here last night um, for David Wallace Wells' talk on the uninhabitable Earth. Hmm. Um, so I was doing compare and contrast in my mind about your talk and his. Um, China is an interesting um, through line, by the way. Um, but the question I had is, um, I have two teenage kids. Um, and they are freaked out, their generation generally, freaked out about climate change, mm -hmm. um, as they rightly should be. Um, but when I ask them about these kind of issues, and do they mind that their data is going everywhere and that these systems know a huge amount about them, they say, no, don't really, doesn't bother them. Um, yep. So I'm wondering what your take is. Sure. That. that to me makes perfect sense because there are plenty of visual examples of what goes wrong when there's climate change. You know, there were fire NATOs in California this year. That's like a shark NATO except fire. There were tornadoes made of fire. That is a dra dramatic AP photo, right? Um, so, so we can see visual evidence of climate change and it is scary and there's plenty of movies about climate change and that is scary. Until something becomes tangible and impacts you in some specific way where you feel a negative reaction, whatever that thing is doesn't feel scary to you. It's not real. Um, and again, this, this is a problem that we face uh, as a culture, I think. You know, America is a nation of nowists. We are not used to thinking much longer term and we don't, you know, and I'm guilty of the same thing. Um, we don't think about the impacts of our actions uh, until something really, truly negative happens. So at some point, um, your kids, like every kid, like my kid, is going to have some, some kind of breach that's going to be horrifying. Um, you know, it might be photos. It might be somebody stealing some of their stuff. And at that point, I can guarantee you they will feel as uh, terrified of the future of their privacy as they currently do about fire natos. Um, or rising sea levels or whatever it might be. So, so we have to somehow 
figure out a way to change that conversation. And again, that's why I wrote this book. Um, the first part sets up the argument. The second part, which are three chapters, there's an optimistic scenario, which doesn't mean utopian. It just means we made the best possible choices given the circumstances and the data that we've got. There's a neutral scenario and then there's a catastrophic scenario. Um, and then the third part are solutions for how we avoid catastrophe and how we take advantage of the, uh, of the, oper uh, of the um, optimistic framing. The scenarios I wrote as a way to make these future problems tangible, visceral, so that we can feel them in real time, so that you feel moved, so that you feel called to action. Um, you know, so, so that's what I would say. And for those of you with kids who are maybe experiencing the same thing, this is why there's a cognitive bias that we all share against things that we don't know yet. They're not as terrifying as the things that we've already experienced and already seen. Thank you very much. Thanks. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.